I mean, it is the most extraordinary story. Yeah. I mean, you know, when it's you the worst medical like, scandal the world's ever seen. It's the worst child abuse the world's ever seen. I mean, it's horrific. It's, it's unbelievable. We don't allow people. We don't allow people under eighteen have a drink, by the way, an alcoholic drink. You're not allowed vote for a very good reason, by the way. Our brain isn't even fully formed until I think we're like twenty six. You know, there's a reason why you know you have to have your permission of your parents to do what you know to move to another country or whatever to get a passport. What all these whatever these things because of the fact that you are a child. Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phelan McAleer. Welcome to the Anne and Phelan Scoop. How are you? Yes. How are you doing there, Phelan? Uh, good, good. A little bit tired. We're recording this just after a, a hectic, hectic weekend. A hectic weekend. We're, uh, actually, this is recording this on Indigenous Day, or should we say Columbus Day. I don't know. We're foreigners. We're never, we'll never be Indigenous, I suppose. No. no. How, long do you have to, how long do your family have to be here to be Indigenous? So, like, if, you, if your family came over in the Mayflower, are you now Indigenous? Yeah, what about people who just arrived yesterday? They're not welcome then, is that it? Because only indigenous people should be here, is that right? Can, can I tell my indigenous day story? Oh, God help I'll us. Anonymize it. Please. So Maybe. Back oh, when we yes. first came here, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it very vague. When, when we, not when we first came here, we've been here quite a while, and we hired someone, a young lady, and uh, she came over uh, not long after uh, we hired her. She came over, and we invited her over for breakfast, uh, you know, kind of to talk about something, and uh, you know, in the course of this conversation, we said, "What are you doing? Any doing anything interesting tonight?" She goes, "Yeah, yeah, I'm heading out to my friends," um, and we said, "Oh," and she says, "Yeah, they're all they're all hitting the town because they they've today off." And I'm going, and I, we said, "Like, why, why, why have they today off?" She goes, "Well, it's Columbus Day; everyone's off." And I'm going, "Oh, okay. Do you want today off then?" And she goes, "Yes." So she took the day off um, and we kind of were a little sheepish because we had someone in working when they weren't supposed to. The person who went off to form their own business, uh, as is the, the nature of these things, phoned this morning. And this is on, we're, we're recording this on Indigenous Day and said, I've just been harassing my employee with emails and text messages. And I'm wondering why I'm not getting a response. And then she, she texted and said, I'm off today. It's Columbus Day. So she... So she, she, so she had to, yes, yeah, she had to sort of um, retrospectively apologize, yes, or, or yes. retrospectively go. I don't know. I, 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 she just found it immensely amusing yes. that uh, that she suddenly realized. Uh, okay, so we're very tired because we went to Vegas, baby, for the weekend, and to listen to Van Morrison. We'll tell you more about that now. Yes, actually, now will we tell more about that? Well, no, actually, no, no, no. Okay, we're, we're we'll tell going to okay. do that teasers All right, first. Well, what else? What's happening with Hunter Biden film? Hunter Biden. Uh, yes. So listen, on today's show, we're going to discuss Hunter Biden. Don't believe anything you're reading about him. Going to be charged for tax evasion uh, or gun charges or whatever. It's a Democrat media stitch up smokescreen just like they did before the last election. Uh, so we'll be talking about that. And in today's California, crazy California, the bullet train that has gone on a wander across the state. Uh, but don't worry. And this is this is 100% true. Don't worry. Experts, Experts assure us Experts. that it will be finished. The bullet train will be finished. The, the, the train is going to take millions of people from LA to San Francisco. Uh, it's going to be finished after... 2100. How do you pronounce it? How do you say that? 2100, yeah, ni like 1900, so 2100. 1900, in the 1900s. In the 2100s. In the 2100s. It's going to be ready in the 2100s. So that's, um, that is just true. for those of you who are finding difficult to follow film, that's 100 years, basically. And we. No, 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 no so it could be reasonable. It's only 80 years now. 
There you go. 80, you heard fact, it right. You it's heard 78 it years. We got this from the New York Times, so it's obviously yes. true. Yes. And later, by the way, we're going to talk to, to journalist Brandon Showalter, our friend, uh, the journalist Brandon Showalter, about the horrors he has uncovered in his investigation of the transgender story. And the Nobel Prize was won, was won, as you probably, as some of you might probably know, the Nobel Prize for Literature was won by the little known, a little, a very little known 82-year-old French author, Annie Ernaud. And it got me thinking when I heard her name and I thought, okay, I haven't heard of her and I have a friend who lives in France who hadn't heard of her and I was thinking, hmm, I wonder why she won it. So we explore that yes. and, um, I, will, and uh, I will bring you into the wild and crazy way my brain works and maybe you'll recognise your own brain there. Yes, and, and believe me, you will understand exactly why she was chosen. And the recipe, we'll have a little very simple recipe at the end. Again, it sounds like I'm actually selling air fryers at this point, but a fabulous, simple appetizer with jalapeno poppers in the air fryer. Absolutely yummy, gorgeous. So, but we're going to start yes, today. We're talking, talking about Van about Morrison, actually. Okay. And so we went to see Van Morrison. First of all, Van the Man. Van the Man in the Coliseum in Vegas. Now, Vegas, so anyone who says Vegas, remember back in the day, Vegas was cheap because they wanted to get you in. Vegas is not cheap. Certainly, Vegas on a Saturday night is not cheap. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, we talked to some people. They said, "Come during the week, it's cheap then." But it's wow, we were shocked. We were shocked at the prices, at and the we price. were shocked. We were shocked about a lot of things. It's incredibly. It was incredibly busy, but that could be on account oh, yes. of, the, of the long weekend, which well, we which again we failed. We failed to recognize. That also, this was a long weekend. Also, uh, the there was game on. Correct. Notre Dame. Notre Dame, as Notre they say Dame. here, as, as we say back in Ireland, Notre Dame. Notre Dame was playing Brigham Young University uh, in Vegas, which was a an which is an unusual place for Brigham Young to be yeah, spending that, time. I would just have say thought. no more than that. However, it was kind of weird. Everyone was Irish except uh, it was like I was surrounded. We were surrounded by like about fifty thousand fake Irish people. Fabulous. They're very nice. Almost fake my favourite thing. Yeah. Not really. We're quite like, yeah, quite like. But the very interesting thing I want to say that, you know, Phelan kind of joked when we went into the Coliseum. Phelan joked, you know, and said, well, Van Morrison is Protestant and he's probably going to Northern, be incredibly. Northern Ireland Northern Irish Protestant. Protestant. He's probably going to be very, very punctual. And it was kind of a joke and we kind of laughed. So the, the concert was scheduled to begin at Can 8 Can I just, we need to give some context here. So okay. I'm from Northern Ireland, Fair right? Enough. Uh, We've from, noticed From Phelan. a Catholic background. You're from Southern Ireland, from a Catholic background. Our houses were brought up less, probably 50 miles apart, 60 miles apart. But a completely, another world, another however, world culture. However, as I say, I never realised how Protestant I was until I went and lived in Southern Ireland. Yes. Like, people just turn up late for things and don't think it's, it's However, wrong. some people... People, people, um, people just go to the pub during the middle of the day. Some people. People drink and drive. People drank. People drank and drove. Like it was like it, I was in a newspaper, like the Sunday Times. And I, I don't want to, you know. And and then there was the other newspapers in the building. So these were people, upper middle class people, middle class people, respectable, married, apparently educated, educated, and they would go to the Allegedly. pub afterwards and have pie, five pints and then drive home. And I'm going, I guess, you know. The, and this so was, this is by way of Phelan explaining that so Northern Irish Protestants are have a particular way of well, Northern Ireland people, which is you know sober, punctual, 
um, you know, and uh, tidy. So basically, so we go in and I, I'm funny enough, even though I'm a Southern Catholic, I suffer from chronic punctuality. Because your father was brought up in England. Because my father was brought up in England and he, is, he was more of a Protestant. He, he was Catholic, but had a very Protestant streak and I'm very, very sober, very correct about time and punctuality yeah. and all that. So I have a bit of an issue with, with punctuality myself. So we, of course, arrive in and actually Phelan was sort of saying, oh, we need to not be running in and whatever. And I said, nah, I want to be in there. So we get, get in about, settled. we get in there and I wanted to be settled on I wanted to get us a drink and all of that so basically we get in and it's like quarter to eight or whatever at um, so we got in at about 7.45 at 7.59 7.59 at one minute to eight the band came on stage um, and at 8pm precisely Van Morrison started to sing now, what I found really unusual, so one of the things when you go to a live band, which I do very, very, very occasionally, is you expect a kind of a bit of a repartee, a bit of a banter, a bit of, a, you know. So just for your knowledge, Van Morrison never said a word to the audience. He never said hello. Yep. I was sort of sitting there thinking, I, I, I didn't even say this to you, Phil, but I genuinely expected him to say, have we got anyone in the house from Northern Ireland? At which point I would have also stood up because I'm from Ulster. Uh, it, we won't get into That's the technicalities there, of that no. a bit of historical stuff there but I thought he was going to say anyone in the house from Northern Ireland from my people or whatever and I thought at that point of course Phelan and I were going to stand up Van Morrison was going to recognise us in front of the other 3,000 people that were there and we'd have been invited backstage for drinks and stuff like that that's kind of the picture I had in my head mm -hmm. however Van Morrison never said hello Van Morrison never said here's the song I wrote because I was really depressed about my wife leaving me or he, none of that here's never a, that hello Las Vegas hello Las Vegas isn't no. it lovely to be here isn't the weather great none of that he never said a word at all about that Van Morrison never said a word about anything and I suppose what he was maybe in his mind he's thinking let the music speak for itself and by the way on that front his first I think three film I'm correct yes. in saying were his from his latest three album three songs were from his latest album which was basically an anti-lockdown super super like, strong anti one of the songs can't go on this way here's the chorus can't go out dancing can't find no joy we can't go on holidays can't stay abroad Klaus is the wizard Gates is playing God can't go on this way it's just not on the government keeps lying everyone I mean so you don't I mean the <laughs> lockdowns in uh, in in the south of Ireland and Northern Ireland were terrible would make California look like a freedom loving uh, yeah Paradise. The, yeah. the Southern Ireland, you weren't allowed to move more than three kilometers from your house. Yeah, uh, and I, I think actually I found it very poignant. Actually, the song is really great. We might be able to pl possibly play a little bit of it. Can't go out dancing Can't find no joy We can't go on holidays Can't stay abroad Klaus is the wizard Gates is playing God Can't go on this way just not on but absolutely a really great song actually I thought you know we're not allowed to go dancing and the way he even put it you know we're not allowed to go out dancing we have, we're not allowed any joy and by the way we know this very well from friends and family who were in Ireland and the UK during the during the, the worst of it and it was a hor horrific kind of life people lived yeah. they were arresting women going out having coffee and this 
kind of nonsense. No, walk, walking together in a park, in a park carrying two coffees. Two coffees. Women were arrested. Yeah. They, were t- they, had, they had checkpoints in Dublin. You weren't allowed to go further than three miles. They were saying to people, where are you going? And if you said you were going to the beach for a walk and the beach was five miles away, turn the car around right now. You oh, weren't allowed to have one. If you were living alone, you weren't allowed to have one visitor come into your house unless you had already identified them somehow on some kind of form that you had to fill in yeah. that would, they were part of your bubble. So anyway, Van Morrison was really great, but just quite funny. So anyway, so he starts singing, as I said, at exactly precisely 8pm I don't even know how we've timed it but it was 8pm he immediately at at 9.30 he you know there was a song going on and the song his part in singing the song or whatever and the beautiful piece came to an end but the band kept on kind of you know you know they were kind of the backup singers whatever who were brilliant by the way the Mm. band were absolutely amazing so they kept going he walked off stage and you know, I, I because of the because of his previous behaviour, I sort of thought, oh dear, I wonder what happens here. And it, will of he do an encore? Everyone in the audience thought he was going to do an encore. Like you know, the whole of the front part, like a thousand people stood up immediately. We stood up. People started shouting, saying, you know, yeah, 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 you know, shouting, shouting, and you're th- and like really enthusiastic audience, really super. They couldn't have been more enthusiastic. And you're thinking, well, they're going to come back and do three songs. I was looking up the fuck my 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 phone, and I was thinking. Well, it's nine thirty. They're going to go till ten o'clock. So actually, no. What happened was at nine thirty, he stopped singing at exactly nine thirty. Exactly nine thirty, he walked off stage and got into a car and drove off. Because I spoke to one of the staff at the venue, and they said, "Yeah, he's in the car already." <laughs> and I don't know, you know, I I have to say I have a bit of respect for it. Actually, yes. I particularly like the punctuality, but I think I could have done with a wee bit of banter. I'd like to have heard a little bit of welcome. You know, hello. This, I wrote this song. I wrote because... this song because it really upset me, or it yeah, didn't upset me. You should me. check out Van Morrison latest album which I don't actually know the name of which we will find the name of and put it in the show notes yes um, so yeah so what else is on the well, show Crazy California Film this is a fabulous story we read in yes. the New York Times this weekend and honestly as Film says the quotes in it like you really couldn't make them up it is the most extraordinary well, piece there's a couple of things that struck me about, about reading it was I, I started to read it and, uh, and unusually for this kind of story the quotes just came, and in the New York Times, the quotes just came thick and fast, yeah. right? Like, every quote was a... I was trying to cut it down to read to the people here, and it's really difficult to cut down. Like, I mean, it's it's so long, but it's so... But it's super it's, Sorry, it's not long. It's, it's, but it's, it's, super it's, it's not long. It's packed full of, of quotes. And, and, and as a journalist, I was reading it going, they're really wasting these quotes, because obviously this is one of these long... 3,000, 5,000 word pieces and they should really spread this out because this is really good. And then I got to a point and I went, I flipped forward and it was the end and I realised, wow, this is this is far too short. It's not often you read something you think it's far too short but it's by a guy, of course, there's a couple of things you think, why is this in the New York Times? It's a guy called Ralph Vartabi, Varta Vartabedian, which I would assume is an Armenian name, but I'd never seen his name before in the New York Times. And of course, it turns out he's a freelance journalist. It's a great piece. It's a great piece. He should win a prize for. He it. should win a prize for. It. It's the kind of piece I want to write, reach out to him now. So what we'll do is we'll put it. We'll put a link into it so you can read the whole thing. But as films says, the quotes in it are magnificent. So here's the headlines: How California's bullet train went off the rails. You know, America's first experiment with high-speed rail has become a multi-billion-dollar nightmare. A political, con- you know, but I mean. I only thing I would disagree with them is how it went off the rails. These projects always go off the rails. Um, you know, they're they're not driven by need. They're not driven by economics. They're driven by politics. So therefore, everything about it becomes political, and therefore, nothing becomes. It's not 
doesn't cost there's no cost benefit analysis As somebody said the rail route was not based on technical and financial criteria yeah. so so let's start you know building the first nation's first bullet train which would connect los angeles and san francisco you know sounds good on paper sounds great. but by the way most bullet trains in the world connect highly dense cities yeah. with another highly dense city. great cities idea where you're within commutable yeah. distance see i mean look it's at the moment it's easier for us almost to drive to sandy uh, drive to it's almost easier for us to fly to vegas than it is to get to downtown la we could go to the airport get on a plane uh, i'm just saying on occasions yeah but i'm just saying I, i'm just saying that if the train is leaving from downtown la it does it, it means nothing to us we'd be we'd almost be the nightmare journey to downtown so in a compact city you could get a tube to the train station and be in San Francisco in two hours, 40 minutes. That's not going to happen here. You'd have to drive to downtown LA. Where would you park? Uh, parking at the, at, the, at the airport now is $50 a day. So it, it, it was a bad idea from the beginning, but it sounded good. Uh, but n so, n and he goes, now as the nation embarks on a historic $1 trillion infrastructure building spree the, in the uh, Reduce Inflation Act, which is going to increase inflation, uh, this, this will serve as a kind of a, hmm. So, the California bullet trails route from Los Angeles to San Francisco, traversing the state's mountain ranges in the Central Valley, uh, was supposed to go up the I-5. That makes sense. The I-5 is this really uh, great road through the most desolate scenery on yes. the planet. Yes. It's, you know, you've got the Pacific Coast Highway, which is beautiful, and you've got the I-5, gets you there in five hours, five hours driving by, or six hours, whatever it is, and it's miserable, but it gets you there. And you would think, just put the railroad alongside it and get on bulletin up there. But so, however, th that's not what happened because politics and politicians got involved. Mm -hmm. uh, and the rail authority has now said it has accelerated the pace of construction on the starter system, uh, which is the middle the, the middle of the state. When the high California High Speed Rail Authority issued its 2022 business draft plan it was supposed to, originally it was going to cost 33 billion but now the latest estimate is 105 billion and three months later the final plan they changed raised the number the, the total cost now to 113 billion dollars billion. billion with a b and then i let, I, I put this 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 really piece really got me the real authority said it has accelerated the pace of construction on the starter system, but at the current spending rate of 1.8 billion a day, a day. Million, million a day. Did I say million? You said billion. Okay, At 1.8 million a day, it's just, at that current rate, Phelan, how yeah. long will it be? Very quickly. According to projections, quickly. widely used by engineers and project managers, the train could not be completed in this century. In this century, which is, we are now... 22 years into this century so we've got a few years left 78 years so 78 years we'll more we'll have flying cars by then 1.8 million dollars a day and they're not yes it'll be yeah in the so century the interview funny the interview lots of people who started off working you know who were the chairman of the real authority I love that and they're all tell now. us about I love the guy so I, you know I'm just we can't read the whole thing but I just think there's some fabulous moments in this tell us Phil about the guy they, so you know they, these these people this is why this is why conservatives by the way are in favour of small government um, because people in charge 
that are called experts usually don't know anything. And no. This is a great example. So they trolled the world to find somebody to run the, the rail authority. You know, you can imagine how you'd interview for a job like that. Um, and they found a guy. They trolled and they found a guy who I would imagine was compensated beautifully. What does that guy say now? I was Phil? totally naive when I took the job. <laughs> totally naive. Said Michael Tenenbaum. He's not finished a yet. Former Wall Street investment banker. Fabulous. Who was the first chairman of the Real Authority 20 years ago. Go on. I spent my time and didn't succeed. I realized the system didn't work. I just wasn't smart enough. I just wasn't smart enough. But he's smart enough to take the money. Go on ahead, Phil. Well, you know, I don't know how they can build it now. Honestly, I think he probably di- didn't do it for the money. He actually thought this is a great project. Um, Anyway, so can, can I just say that, uh, one part of this that I love, and this is, there's too many parts of this to mention. Yes. But one part of what I love, I love about this was the French are very famous for their trains, and they're pretty good at doing and that, the right? Trains. And and bullet trains. So SNCF, the French Authority, was asked to come in and give some advice, or whatever. And I just love this French National Railroad. The French, S- SNCF. Yeah, the, so yeah. I'll just read this bit. The state, the, the state was warned repeatedly that its plans were too complex. So SNCF, the French National Railroad, uh, was among bullet train operators from Europe and Japan that came to California in the early 2000s with hopes of getting a contract to help develop the system. The company's recommendations for a direct route out of Los Angeles and a focus on moving people from Los Angeles and San Francisco were cast aside, said Dan McNamara, a career project manager for SNCF. The company pulled out in 2011. But wait till you hear this. I just think this is gorgeous. There were so many things that went wrong, said Mr. McNamara. SNCF were very angry They told the state they were leaving for North Africa, which was less politically dysfunctional. They went to Morocco and helped them build a rail system. Morocco's bullet train started service in 2018, seven years later. So I just love that, though. I just think that that's a beautiful... I want to put that on a T-shirt, by the way. So North Africa, less politically dysfunctional than California... One of the richest, uh, if it was if California was a country, I think it's what is it maybe the third richest country on the planet Earth, something like that, or maybe the second. So I just think that's fabulous. So basically, this yeah. could, they, are there other parts of well, this you want to mention? Uh, so it's so fabulous. I mean, didn't go up the I five in a straight line. It of took, not. as they call it, the dog leg, which uh, you know, uh, or as we would call it, the. Uh, Flynn, top, Flynn top, Highway. No, Top Cat's leg after he broke it. Oh, right. don't mention Top Cat leg like that. There's a photograph of Top Cat with, with a broken, broken leg. leg. Yeah. So that's that, that's so, and that became uh, that came about. I mean, it's it's kind of complicated, but it, so there's an, a, a supervisor, Mike Antovich, uh, a member of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, and he he was getting funded for politics by uh, Mr. Jerry Epstein, <laughs> who basically, where we used to live in Marina del Rey, used to, for 50 years, in the 60s, was all oil rigs, right, along there. And he looked at that and said, that's a beachfront development. And everyone laughed at him. And he built this amazing beachfront development. There was a marina built. I mean, he's responsible. For, I mean, he created beauty. He created uh, commerce. He, he's a wonderful guy. He died a couple of years ago. Uh, but he... Yeah, he needed all his leases renewed. He he leased the land around there for, on 40-year leases, and the 40-year lease came up, and he needed it all reviewed. But he was also on the real authority, Mr. Epstein. So he did a deal with the supervisor. Uh, and, and Let's get that train to <laughs> Yeah, <stop>. so <laughs> Antovich said, I wanted to go through my constituency. Epstein said, if you renew my leases, 
as a supervisor, I'll make sure that I use my influence on the real authority to send it through your constituency. Boom, boom, and a deal was done. Uh, so then you had this high-speed bullet train that was wandering off to the right. Suddenly it wasn't really a high-speed bullet train. It was a yes. place, it was actually, by the way, sounded like, beginning to sound an awful lot like a regular train yes. that just stops all over the place. And then, of course, when that started, all these guys in the Central Valley... Like, I wanted to stop at my place. I want to stop in my town and my town and my town. So suddenly, it's it's stopping in all these towns you know, in the Central Valley. But just to let you show, and that was going to help reduce poverty, but just to let you show it's not just these people in impoverished areas who wanted that. So... How was it going to go to San Francisco? The obvious uh, solution is go in along the existing railway line and use it. But no, the San Jose, which or no Palo Alto, San Jose, home of Silicon Valley. The big problem is people can't afford to work there and live there. Uh, so they said, well, why doesn't the train come through San Jose? And that will mean that our workers can live in the in, Central Valley, in the Central Valley, where it's. Things are really cheap, cheap, very cheap compared uh, because to, compared because to of the poverty. So we'll be able to afford our staff and, and help our business. And rather than telling them to go and take a running hike and and pay their workers more money yeah. uh, from the hundreds of trillions that Trillion, they make, gazillions. They they said, okay, we'll put it through San Jose, and of course. That, this means digging tunnels. This means building, building those big viaducts, is it, whatever it's this called? This means it won't be done in 100 years, basically. Um, that's the estimate. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing story. We're going to put it up in the show notes. It's an extraordinary story. It's everything that you need to know about politicians in California, about green ideas. Um, it, it's it, just, it's and by the way, what's really awful, by the way, it's kind of amusing the way we're telling this story, but what's really terrible about all of this wasted money is that people are dying of cancer in the world, you know. Mm -hmm. There are people who are struggling with children who are very, you know, very badly disabled, for example, mm -hmm. who should have 24-7 help yes. from the state yes. and could have, because this is a very, very wealthy state and should be getting that kind of help, but the money is being diverted to this kind no, of nonsense. Point, yeah. You know, 1.8 million a day, a day going for this thing, which is probably never going to happen. And that's only that's happen. that's only that means it's going to take a hundred years to build to really make sure it's built. They're going to have to spend how much? Hundred million a day? Oh Two hundred million terrible. a day? Terrible. So, so, in a moment, we're going to go over to an interview we we uh, we did earlier with Brandon Showalter, our friend who is a journalist with the Christian Post, and Brandon has you know distinguished himself of of late by focusing and investigating on this transgender. Uh, madness and this transgender hysteria and this infectious transgender thing that seems to be happening among young people and it's really amazing and just before we go over to that I just wanted to give you a snapshot of stuff that I've seen on just in the last couple of days on the media and in social media the first one is look at this headline from the BBC um, the rise parent the parents raising their children without gender and this is a long story here um, from the, from the BBC you know as Gabriella Martenzo prepared for the birth of her first child she came to a decision she wouldn't tell her child if they'd been born a boy or a girl and would largely avoid discussing the birth sex with people outside her family and friend group this this article goes on again okay, we can put it up in the show notes but what's extraordinary is the article you know really is very supportive of this idea of, of people bringing up children without telling them what if they're a boy or a girl are having them this general completely ludicrous by the way well, but it's almost I mean, impossible uh, come on Every ch impossible. what are children don't want stability it's almost children don't want certainty children don't want go ahead sorry. it's almost impossible actually to find 
um, the criticism in the article. The article is very much in favour of all of this. And I mean, eventually, you know, you find, you know, Martison, who's, who's since repeated the approach with her own two children, is part of what some experts say is a small yet growing number of parents, both straight and queer, who've opted for general and neutral parenting. Um, but, you know, as I said, it's very hard to find anything negative in this article. But psychotherapist Varmeren says his experience working with clients suggests that not all kids mm. exposed to this style of parenting will react positively. Really? No, are you kidding? Really? Really? No, you know, for children who feel secure to explore the space their parents offer them, the journey can be one of discovery. However, for some children, the lack of prescribed identity can bring with it uncertainty and increased anxiety. No kidding, right? Mm. But, the, you know, so I, I wanted to just give, you know, just a very quick uh, snapshot of this. I mean, and reading this, reading this article, it's extraordinary. Like, the, here's a paragraph that end, that begins, you know, Berlin-based queer gender... Qu- Berlin-based queer gender-neutral parenting author, blogger, and lecturer. You know, is the name of that's how they introduce somebody. Um, and it, you know, and here's another one. You know, uh, a Toronto-based couple who raised a child called Storm without giving them a gender label, and a cis and a cis husband and his queer gender and his gender queer wife in Salt Lake City who documented their journey bringing up a kid called Zoomer. Well, God help Zoomer, you know. Yeah. I think children actually need an awful lot of certainty in this life, um, particularly when they're children. It's a, it's enough confusing growing up without this kind of lack of certainty. And I think children actually really crave certainty. Unbe- it's a and horrible of course, story. Of course, I mean, do you think those children are going to uh, say, announce, well, I'm a boy? They're, they're getting not subtle signals. Parents, yes. Children pick yes. up on subtle signals. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is why so many children, I mean, children follow their parents. And, you know, you and know they want to, yeah, they want, they, want, they want their parents to be happy with them. But also they, 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 they follow their char- parents' career, even if their parents are in a really obscure career. And it's like, that's because they're influenced by their parents. You yes. know, you know and, and they're, they end up being happy because, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's a bad thing, but they pick up on subtle uh, parental desires and wishes and and, and and feelings. You know, imagine non-subtle parental desires. Oh God, I mean, yeah. of course, they, they feel like they're a boy. Uh, if, they, if they are a boy and they want to announce it, they will not announce it. Yes, they will yes, follow. Because they'll know that that's not popular. I just wanted to give those, but I, I want to have, have yes. three quick examples. Yes. One was this BBC. The other one was this video. And I want to play this video from now. This is from Harvard's Children's Hospital. The Harvard Children's Hospital, where their expert, expert, the word expert has been destroyed. COVID destroyed the word expert. But I love this Harvard Children's Hospital expert who says that babies know in the womb that they're transgender now these are the same babies by the way that are so uh, you know they're so nothing they're such a nothing burger that you can actually abort them right up until birth you can dismember them but suddenly suddenly these same children that you can dismember and kill up until birth Mm -hmm. are the same the very same children who have enough consciousness so they're actually so human that they actually know their sexuality in the womb let's watch that video So most of the patients that we have in the GEMS clinic actually know their gender, usually around the age of puberty, but a good portion of children do know as early as seemingly from the womb, and they will usually express their gender identity as very young children, some as soon as they can talk. They might say phrases such as, I'm a girl, or I'm a boy, or I'm going to be a woman, or I'm going to be a mom. Kids know very, very early. So in the GEMS clinic, we see a variety of young children all the way down to ages two and three, and usually up to the ages of nine. 
when they come into the clinic, they'll see one of our psychologists and we'll be talking to them about their gender. We'll be talking to their family about how to best support that child and how to make sure that that child has the space and support to explore their gender and uh, do well throughout their development. And we'll be answering any parent questions. A lot of parents do have questions and so we answer those questions. The biggest piece of advice I give parents uh, who are coming through the gender clinic at Boston Children's Hospital is to just be supportive. Um, sometimes you might not understand, sometimes you feel like you don't know the terms or you don't kind of get exactly what the child means when they say that they might be this gender, but the biggest thing you can do is just love your child and support them and just allow them to express themselves. That's the biggest protector as well against negative mental health effects such as depression, suicidality, anxiety that we worry about for our gender diverse kids and young adults. So that support from a parent is one of the best protective factors and one of the best things they can do. Super, super disturbing. Yeah. And then this last thing I just want to bring people, you know, if you go on, I mean, I, I have to say I do a lot of doom scrolling on Twitter. Um, and I just came across this this thread by Gays Against Groomers. Well, actually, Gays Against Groomers actually retweeted this. But Annie, listen to this woman, Annie. Just awful. Really sad. I really wish those who push gender and transition on young, vulnerable people, both kids and adults, could witness the devastation this does to a family. Mm -hmm. We spend our lives walking on eggshells in order to maintain a relationship and build trust with our child. Yeah. We are tired, run down, and have no idea when or if we will emerge from this hell. My child has many other issues, as they all do, of which gender is a symptom not a cause she goes on i really don't know why those who are supposed to help us can't see that this is such a lonely place to be and i wouldn't wish it on anyone rant over i'm having a bad day and then people started writing to this woman on twitter this is one woman carlotta she said my daughter hasn't spoken to me since may 2019 she says i'm dead to her because I didn't affirm. Another person wrote and said, our family is destroyed. Our eldest daughter came out years ago to much love and support. Transitioned this year, our other three girls have excommunicated us out of our lives because we refuse to play the pronoun gender game. Yeah. This is hell on wheels. So this is kind of our way of introducing Brandon, who we're going to go over to now, who really is doing extraordinary work because mainstream journalists, as we, as we mentioned in this, in this interview, completely gave up on doing the job that they should do, which is just reporting the facts of what's going on. Let's listen to this interview now. Um, we're now joined by Brandon Showwater. Um, he's a senior reporter with the Christian Post and one of the very few journalists who is reporting on the very alarming trans surgeries on minors that's going on. In a recent op-ed about how the issue was being covered by the media, he said, they've got the public, a large swath of them, in a psychological straitjacket of deceit. He also said the truth will ultimately win out, but we have to keep telling it. Brandon, welcome, and tell us what is the truth about this trans surgery on minors? Well, first of all, I mean, we're told it doesn't happen. Isn't that right, Brandon? It, 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 isn't that the story, or has the story moved on? Tell us, tell us what the story was and what the story is now. No, it's good to join you, Ann and Phelan. And it, is, it has been interesting to watch lately because the corporate press, the legacy media, has moved on from the narrative their usual gaslighting from that's not happening. That's right wing bigoted misinformation to actually, yeah, it is. And it's good for them. Just recently, CBS ran with the narrative that this new study from JAMA Pediatrics, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association, they surveyed, I think, 30 some you know, young women ages 13 to 24 who got their breasts amputated 
and after three months that how this dramatically improved their lives, their mental health or whatever. The age range was listed right there, said 13 to 24. So they've moved on from from just late August and throughout September where when it was shown through various children's hospitals that minors had been disfigured in this way, that that's not happening. That's these, these, these are right-wing liars. These are, they're causing threats against these doctors at these hospitals. That's not happening. That's just, that's a bunch of lies. So now saying after journalists like me and a few others have held up the mirror and said, actually, really, I have journal articles here where gender clinicians themselves have said in their own words, sometimes we even have video clips where they're saying, yes, they do cut the breasts off of minor girls. They have cut the genitals off of 15 and 16 year old boys. They have been operating on minors. It's indisputable. We have the receipts. And so now in light of that, because we refuse to shut up, they're now starting to say, actually, yeah, some, some kids are getting these gender surgeries and it's improving their lives. So they've, it's, it's very illuminating to watch how quickly they've pivoted from saying that it's not happening to now saying that it is. And it's a good thing. And in terms of numbers, Brandon, how, how big is this? Because it's, it, it seems to feel like it's actually exploded. Uh, the numbers have exploded. What are we talking about in terms of numbers here in the States? Well, that's a very good question, and it's a difficult one, because regardless of what people think about socialized medicine, good figures are hard to track here. We have 50 different states, and in European nations where they do have more of a centralized system, you can see the numbers more easily. And the fact that we don't have very good numbers is itself, in my view, a medical scandal. But what we do know, <clears throat> and this is documented in Abigail Schreier's watershed book, Irreversible Damage, she cites the American Society for Plastic Surgeons, and I've seen these numbers as well, that from 2016 to 2017, the number of girls who underwent these disfiguring gender surgeries, and that would include top and bottom, like breast and genitals or whatever, quadrupled from 2016 to 2017. And they've only steadily increased ever since. We're talking thousands and tens of thousands of, uh, I don't know about minors, but young adults mostly, and some minors who have had their bodies irreparably altered, damaged, mutilated, disfigured, whatever you want to say. And this is a project, this is, a, this is an industry. So I've seen figures from Global Market Insights I think in 2018 or 2019, I believe the projection value for this market was, I, I believe, $316 million. And it's projected by, I think, 2026 to be 1.5. My numbers are fuzzy, but they're planning for massive growth. That's what we can say, because if you can medicalize a young person and market this kind of experimental medicalization as not only a treatment for a psychiatric condition of gender dysphoria, but also posit it you know, as, a, as an identity You've got a customer base. You've got an income stream. And so we do know that thousands upon thousands are being harmed in this way. And thankfully, we're now seeing what are known as detransitioners start to put their head above the parapet and say, this didn't solve my problems. This wrecked my life. I, I couldn't consent to this as a minor. I didn't know I would wind up sterile. I didn't know about the other health problems. This was told that I was going to have to have this or I was at risk for suicide. Parents are strong armed into this. Those testimonies are finally starting to break through the media blockade. But I think when this spell, I often say, when this spell of gender ideology breaks off of our society, I'm going to be among the few that's not shocked by the scope of how bad and how vast the numbers are because we're, I mean, everybody and their brother, people I know, this is affecting entire neighborhoods where suddenly dozens of kids are coming out as the opposite sex and they're being steered down this experimental pathway. 
Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the most powerful parts of of the work that you're doing, I know, is you. you I mean, you've you've met individuals who are you know you've met parents you've been talking to parents but you've also been talking to detra- you know people who have detransitioned um tell us give us a sample of some of the some of the stories that you've come across i know they're very very heartbreaking many of them could you just give us a, a taste of that please well the parents agony i think is even worse than some of the detransitioner agony because at least uh detransitioners have the the ability to see that what happened to them was wrong and Sometimes they willingly participated in it because they themselves were deceived. And so uh, they at least have an understanding of what happened to them. Parents who are in the midst of this are just in unbelievable agony trying to navigate this when all of the institutions are pitted against them. The schools, the counselors, the doctors, every place where you would think you could get some sound, ethical, moral advice captured entirely by these ideologues. All of the professions are just so corrupted by this. Worst of all, in my view, is the media, because they have protected all of these other entities with their incessant deceit and lies. I mean, the straitjacket of deceit that I mentioned, that quote you're talking about, it's like a large swath of the public thinks this is all fine and that there's this heavily scrutinized process. These poor few numbers of children who are truly distressed, these are caring people. It's totally, everything's inverted. So the parents are just dealing with some kind of agony, but the detransitioners, when you, when you hear about um, some of the things that have happened to their body and the after effects of the post-operative regret, it's unbelievable. I profiled a man who underwent uh, an orchiectomy, which is his testicles were removed in 2020, he wrote a 6,000 word feature story about his journey, reviewed his medical records, corroborated his story with a couple of other people who knew him, I had enough evidence that this guy was legit and, I know other places where he's told his story and indeed the other journalists have, he's gone, he went by pseudonym because he couldn't put his name on the record, but I knew he was legit. Uh, He, the way he described how these various surgeries and medical procedures were marketed to him was like a multi-level marketing upsell. Like they were just putting him on the conveyor belt. And when he was enticed into his testicles being amputated, he was told that he, they wouldn't affect, it wouldn't affect how he looked, felt or functioned. And then he wakes up from the surgery and he realizes he's been, he's been castrated. And not long after that, he's filled with regret, attempts suicide, and uh, brace yourself, starts ejaculating blood. I mean, it's just the most horrific carnage that you've ever seen. And all done under the banner of healthcare. I mean, that's what's outrageous about it. Like, this isn't medical care. This is experimentation. We're disfiguring the body and calling it medicine. Everything's inverted. Yes. I, I wanted to ask you, you talked there about whole neighborhoods uh, being affected. From your research, has this idea that it's a social contagion, is it, is it, is it, I think Bill Maher talked about this as well. He said it's, it's geographically located as well. It's, it's certain areas and it's exploding in certain areas. So it's not a disease. It's not a syndrome. It's a social contagion. It, it, tell me about that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's everywhere these days, but it's concentrated in more liberal areas where it's very progressive, supposedly. But it's the, the toniest private schools in Manhattan, San Francisco, Los Angeles, sort of the places where you would expect it. But it's even in rural Alabama and in places where you would never think wherever wherever there's Wi-Fi, <laughs> this is affecting your kids. But yes, there is, I think, 
undeniable evidence that this is a social contagion. I mentioned Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage. The jumping off point of that book was the 2018 study by Brown uh, University researcher Lisa Littman, who surveyed all of these parents and found that I think over 60% of their mostly daughters who became ensnared in this in this peer contagion had spent inordinate amounts of time online. And, and so they come out in these friend groups in these clusters of their friends where suddenly they assume this alternate gender identity, oftentimes as trans or non-binary or whatever it was. And so Abigail's book really explains in granular detail just how this contagion has just sucked countless young girls, especially. They're the predominant demographic now down this route of where they're starting to demand cross-sex hormones or a mastectomy or other kinds of surgeries. And it's undeniable. Yes. A social contagion. When I was growing up, it was, you know, the social contagion of the time for young girls was anorexia where they wanted to control their body and destroy their, they hated their body. Then I met, we missed this guy. I think the next decade it was um, self-harming behavior, cutting behavior. And to me, this is just, you know, a bit of a mixture of anorexia and cutting with it. But back then, when you were anorexic or bulimic or involved in cutting and self-harming behavior, you were taken to a mental health facility. You were giving psychiatric counseling, told this was wrong and tried to stop it. Now, when you when these young girls get involved in self-harming behavior, uh, i.e., you know, cutting their wanting to cut their breasts off, they're they're lauded as heroes and the whole medical establishment gets behind them. That's exactly right. The dynamics are very similar. And uh, we know that in hospital wards, I mean, doctors have had to be careful because of how anorexia spreads, that they don't make it even worse for, you know, putting anorexics on the same in the same location because they can then encourage each other in their distress. Well, the same thing happens to be going on here with this gender madness and, you know, this is then socially reinforced amongst friend groups, and it is the popular thing to do. Uh, and the media seems to just go right along with it, I think, because of certain financial things. I mean, the pharmaceutical companies and the medical industrial complex are all over this. And it's also hooked to the wagon of LGB civil rights. And so everybody who's more on the progressive side of things feels obligated to support it, even though I get phone calls and emails all the time from gays and lesbians who are furious and angry that this is happening to young people, some of whom are same-sex attracted. I mean, it's just, it's the most bewildering uh, thing I think I've ever seen. And there's a ragtag motley crew of unconventional people who are joining their voices together to resist it. It's a very kind of strange, but fascinating phenomenon going on. Um, Funny, that was one of my, what was my next question? What I was going to ask you about, where was the opposition? But actually, um, the other thing that comes up is, where where do doctors where do, where are the medical professionals who are, are are is there a massive bunch of medical professionals shouting out against this and saying this is complete madness where are they where is that voice being heard they are few and far between they're hard to come by but there is the american college of pediatricians which is sort of an alternative to the american academy of pediatrics which is captured um and on that note i'll just say that the aap conference in anaheim there's uh, some pro there's going to be a protest outside of that conference in Anaheim, California, coming up on October 8th, where they, they've been sort of, the AAP's been sort of 
backtracking recently trying to say, well, we've never, you know, affirmation about gender identity has never been about pushing kids towards this. They're trying to what they call CYA. Uh, there's, there's sort of hedging and you know, modulating a little bit. And I don't think they should be allowed to get away with memory holding this kind of thing because they've been totally embracing this for the last few years now. And the way those guidelines, their guidelines have been written and rewritten in recent years is very, very suspect. Um, but doctors are intimidated. I've, I spoke with an endocrinologist who told me a few years ago, and this is typical, that I think he was from Kaiser. Uh, oh, well, I, I don't agree with this, but I have a family to feed. There's, there's a culture of fear and intimidation. There are some brave doctors, again, the American College of Pediatricians. There are others. Um, I think SEGM, the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, has some doctors involved with that. There are alternative groups forming. forming. But the mainstream professional societies and groups of doctors, um, they're, they're captured. The other thing I'll just add is that uh, many doctors from what I understand, they're just not political at all. They want to practice medicine. They do their they, they do their jobs. They want to take care of patients. And getting into the public policy stances of their professional societies is just left to the few sort of academic medicine and activist types. And so then they control the debate, even though many of the members of the AAP, for example, are totally opposed to this. But if they're not keeping up to speed with what the latest medical literature is saying, they just it's just not on even their radar. Um, so there's been a very strategic capture of certain entities and that then shapes how the public perceives them via a complicit media and then it's just a mess. <laughs> you mentioned it's interesting that that um that that organization that AAP is it AAP the American are meeting, Academy, yeah, are meeting yes. that they're meeting in Anaheim so in California so there has been some recent legislation that's just passed in California some very very drastic. Of course, it's California, by the way, so we, we expect that. Can you tell us what this actually means, this sanctuary that has been created here? And I think it's probably one of the most evil pieces of legislation I have ever seen signed into law. It is absolutely horrific. It's, it was, I believe, SB 107. Uh, I forget the name of the legislation, but yes, it creates a trans sanctuary state where young people from out of state can come to California and have a safe haven to obtain these drugs and surgeries, and parents are cut out of the picture. In states like Texas and Florida and Alabama and Arkansas, where there has been some kind of state government action against this medicalization, California is saying, come here. And we'll, <laughs> I, I'm, I didn't see the final version of the bill, but at least at one point, I know my contacts were out there were telling me, it wouldn't surprise me if this is still in there. But at the time, my last reference was that even the state courts would be empowered to sever parental rights from out-of-state parents. I mean, this is unbelievable. So you can just think of the possible repercussions where young kids are going to come there and be used by pimps, who knows, and be trafficked into these gender... I mean, I just... It's a nightmare. And it's yeah. been signed yeah. into law. The famous things about America, and actually in child child issues, right? So if I uh, take my child to, like, Romania tomorrow, there's a thing called the Hague Convention on Intercountry Adoption. And the, the great thing about the Hague Convention is... I think it's the Hague Convention is that... The law of Romania doesn't matter at all, right? It's the law of where the child came from. If the child was involved in a legal process in the host country, in its home country, and its home state, 
then it doesn't matter what the regulations are in uh, in Romania or in Saudi Arabia or wherever. Maybe probably Saudi Arabia is not part of it. But you can have all these different cultures. But the, the, the law states it doesn't matter where you you can't reward abduction uh, mm-hmm. to another state and the other state can't re-examine the case. The only thing that the other state can do is, is say that was a legal process. You must go. And they order the child back to the country and they take the child back to the country. California is overturning if 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 the law is what what we think it is uh, and it's unclear but it looks like California is overturning this precedent this this law that makes all the sense in the world when you think of it it stops people abducting and forum shopping and court shopping uh, uh, until they get the result that they want uh, for for themselves. And now California, the most progressive state, is uh, is overturning this decades of, of of legislation designed to help children. And this follows on other bills that California has passed funding this kind of thing. There's all sorts of wellness funds, wellness funds, and other you know, financial means of facilitating this. And so it, they've laid the infrastructure. Uh, not, none of this is constitutional, and so I'm sure that there probably will be some challenges from other states that are trying to defend their laws against this kind of thing. And uh, I'm sure that this will be. Uh, we're, we're not. We've not. We've only just begun to see what the legal processes will be as this is contested. But it is. Uh, it's just so chilling that a, a state would actually take upon itself the right to cut parents out of their child's lives about something that would be so drastic. I mean, you, you can't even escape to another state if you want to you want to get away from this kind of thing, because they can then somehow traffic your kid back into their state and get it. To, I mean, it's just I, I've just my jaw continues to drop about what's going on in this space. It's just very disturbing, Brandon. And I follow you and I follow the work that you're doing, which is amazing work. And and we we, we thank you for that work. Um. Can you give us any hope here? Where's the hope in this story um, and the hope for parents who are listening and maybe grandparents and people who are at any level connected to parts of this story, which I think an awful lot of people are at this point? Where, where is the hope? The hope is that, well, I'm a person of deep faith and I believe that God's not going to tolerate this much longer. So that's what ultimately uh, grounds me. But I can say that the landscape is vastly different today than it was even just one year ago because of the increased awareness. And because the corporate media is so captured by this dogma, it has been left to independent muckraking filmmakers, such as yourselves and others, who have been raising the alarm and were poking enough holes in the grand narrative. Alternative press and filmmakers have been saying the truth's getting out there regardless. And the debate has been shifted. But until this house of cards falls and not one moment sooner, they're going to stay noisy. So uh, there's a there was a film recently. Again, I you say detransitioners a moment ago. There's a film by the Center for Bioethics and Culture called The Detransition Diaries: Saving Our Sisters, which profiles three women that all went on testosterone. One of whom got their breasts cut off, and they it's sort of an inner window of how these vulnerable young people are lured down this pathway. And it really explains so much. Uh, That's on Vimeo now from the Center for Bioethics and Culture. I would recommend everybody go, I think it's like five bucks to see it, but totally worth it. Um, There are other films like that that have come out. Tucker Carlson recently did a film that I was in. And there are, are, I mean, I think there's, I know of at least seven 
independent films that are coming out from a variety of angles, some even made by Democrats, because this is not just a Republican Democrat thing. The opposition to this is broad because I hear from a wide variety of people, but they're telling the stories through film. Since the media is so terrible, the truth had to get out there in a lot of different ways. But hey, I applaud any and all efforts to do so. Yeah, and we're very grateful for what you've done. I mean, it is extra. I mean, it is the most extraordinary story. Yeah. I mean, you know, but it's you the realize, worst medical like, scandal the world's ever seen. It's the worst child abuse the world's ever seen. I mean, it's horrific. It's, it's unbelievable. We don't allow people. We don't allow people under eighteen have a drink. By the way, an alcoholic drink. You're not allowed vote for a very good reason. By the way, um, I mean, I remember reading quite a lot about about you know people with mental health issues and realizing that our brain isn't even fully formed until I think we're like twenty six. So you know that the, I mean, and these the medical profession know all of this. They know the fact. You know, there's a reason why, you know, you have to have your permission of your parents to do what, you know, to move to another country or whatever, to get a passport, what all these, whatever, these things, because of the fact that you are a child and you're, you know, and, and being a child, you just don't know stuff. You're, you know, you're, you're still growing. You're still trying to work stuff out. And the idea that we would listen to a child who would say, I want my breasts cut off. I want to lose all my ability to ever have a child myself permanently. I would permanently change myself or a boy to lose, you know, any ability to ever have a normal sex life, have a normal marriage or any of that. It's, 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 um, as you say, I think it's the worst medical scandal of all time, you know, uh, right up there, you know, with right up there, eugenics, yeah. you mm -hmm. know, with eugenics, actually. Yeah, right. um, it's actually, that's similar. the nearest thing, actually, funny to, to try and compare it to something. Another is progressive. Another progressive idea, by the way, which again, which is interesting, Brandon, because eugenics was extremely popular among the highly intelligent, the highly intellectual, all of the most progressive the people thought it was a great idea, you know, that we would have one generation, what was it, three generations of imbeciles is enough. You know, Wendell, Wendell Holmes, you know, I mean, unbelievable, these um, the decisions great, that were the made. Great, the great jurisprudence, the, the great icon of jurisprudence. Uh, of jurisprudence, yeah. yeah. I mean, Nothing new under the sun, they've just renamed it. There's just a few, yeah, it's, it's true. I think, I mean... It is, there is going to be great fallout and we're going to have to be thinking a lot, especially as more and more detransitioners come forward. We're, we're going to, we're going to see, be seeing rising rates of cardiovascular disease, endocrine disease, liver complications, kidney problems, the, the weakened bones, because that's what the hormone blockers do. They take calcium out of their bones that you can't reintroduce later. Of course, and then sterilizing people. That's what gets me. Like how that doesn't just make people like that doesn't become magically ethical just because you wave a rainbow flag in the background. I mean, come on. Uh, it's, it's horrific. Well, I know people who wanted to get sterilized in their twenties, Yeah, you know, uh, heterosexual people who wanted to get sterilized in their twenties and they could not find a doctor to do it. This is 20 years ago. They could not find a doctor to do it because it was judged to be too dramatic, too dramatic yeah. and too irreversible. And you were 20 and, and you're an idiot. And you're in twenties. Oh, they were, uh, this person was in their twenties. I guess their late twenties, but they wouldn't do it because they could change their mind, and it was so irreversible. Uh, uh, so, you, you know, you're allowed to, to, they won't do anything. They, back then, they wouldn't do anything. I think the person, yeah, it was in their mid to late 20s. Too irreversible. We can, you're too young. But now we, they can do it to teenagers. Yeah. It's, Have you it's, seen? But, yeah. Go on, yeah. sorry, Brandon. Well, I was just going to say, if anybody doubts me, I, I, would I would point them to an article that I published at the end of August called, Yes, Trans Surgeries Are Being Done on Minors. Here's Proof. Where I, I just have a collated list of, recent medical peer-reviewed journal articles where the gender clinicians themselves say 
I quote them in their own words and I give you the citations that yes, they've done it to minors. They can deny all they want. I'm, I'm just like, no, look, <laughs> you, you said that you did this. Like it's not in dispute here and don't take my word for it. Read the Lancet, the Journal of Clinical Medicine, the Journal of Sexual Medicine, Obstetrics and Gynecology. It's all there. <laughs> Yeah, and we'll actually put the link up to that article, by the way, um, yeah. in the show notes. And the other thing I was going to mention to you when you when you just said that there, and also, by the way, you could add to that list, the Irish woman, I'm trying, I can't think of her name now, you're going to probably interrupt me and say it, the woman in Florida, the Irish woman who has the TikTok channel. And I've watched a little bit of that TikTok channel. She's a young Irish um, you know, uh, in a gender affirming clinic in Miami, um, making a lot of money, I think, from from this kind of work. And she has these really disturbing videos and very disturbed. And she's making it all very popular. And she has I mean, I won't even say the phrase she used for a double mastectomy, a really horrible phrase. She had this kind of she has this slang phrase for that. Um, you know, the woman I'm, t I'm referring to. I do. Her name is Sive Gallagher. Yeah. And she is on TikTok. She markets this. Uh, and you may not want to say the phrase, but I will, because I think we got to confront this stuff. But she talks about yeeting the teats, you know, getting yeah, that's just some kind of fun joke. And she she gets on this. It's it's so I, I said this to another uh, journalist that I was talking to recently. You know, Miss Gallagher is physically attractive woman. She's a blonde Irish woman. She's operating. There's this other dude up in uh, Canada, uh, Giancarlo McEvenue. He's a handsome looking guy, I guess you can say, but I've seen pictures of him on Instagram where he's holding up two buckets labeled breast tissue with a Santa Claus hat. It's the most grotesque, ghoulish. You don't expect to see these kinds of, you know, rather attractive looking people, men and women alike, pushing this barbarity. And that's yeah, funny. but that's how marketing works, right? It really you know, is. It's, it's this you know, sexy, sheet kind of thing. And, and worst of all, it's to vulnerable people on social media. I mean, I, they, I don't know. Like, I, I would think that there would have to be some kind of guidelines about what kind of products or services you can sell on that. But no, she was just, Miss Gallagher was just profiled kind of in the New York Times where more trans teens are getting top surgery. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, it's what I blame, I, Anna Phelan, I blame the journalists yeah, most for this because they are the protection racket around these medical institutions and these doctors doing this to people because they would not be allowed to get away with what I think are atrocities, but for the manipulative language, the straitjacketed deceit that they have covered this with. They're supposed to expose this with the truth, with words. Nope. They frame this entirely with deceptive euphemisms and therefore the public is completely in the dark about a lot of this. And yeah. actually you're very, you know, that's a very good point to make just coming to the end of the interview, but, but talking about, you know, these kind of euphemisms. And I even heard myself, by the way, recently, I will confess to this. I was talking to someone and I talked, I said top surgery, which no one should ever say that. that there's no such thing. There is no such thing. It's called a double mastectomy. It hasn't changed. The, na the name hasn't changed. The, the process hasn't changed in any way. How does it suddenly become this thing? There's no, it's not anything different. It's a double mastectomy. And, and, and I think that's how you soften. That's how these, you know, gender affirming, you know, no, it's not gender, you know, it's not gender affirming, but that's obviously the kind of language that they use to try to suck people into this horror yeah. show. Get, get your air quote, get your air quote fingers working because that's, and that, that can't be, uh, that is an important point to emphasize because 
What is so insidious about this dogma is that they've hijacked our very means of communication. If you can destabilize language, you can destabilize thought. You can warp and manipulate public perceptions to make someone think that what's actually being done is really being done. And you have just, if you use the language, they've, you've already given away half the ball field. And if you ever want to normalize an injustice, the first step is always to rename it. Yeah. And by the way, we, we, we do have a little bit of history on that one. You know, Planned Parenthood, <laughs> you know, um, they're not planning, they're not planning any kind of parenthood, by the way. It's exactly the opposite of that. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and all, and all of those other kind of phrases that they use to kind of downplay what abortion is, you know, because they don't like the word abortion. Interestingly enough, you know, they prefer to use any other well, kind of Well, they're in on this now, too. The abortions are down, and so they're now peddling hormones like they're candy. I know women who have gone in there, and within half an hour, they come out with testosterone by a telehealth call. I mean, it's just insane. <laughs> yeah, no, it's terrible. Brandon, thank you very, very much yes. for your time today. This is, you know, you are really, you know, at the forefront, obviously, of the journalism that needs to be done about this. And and I think what I think what you've just said is really important. You know, that this is actually that the journalists almost you're almost fingering, yeah. you know, you're almost saying that the, the journalists, in fact, are singularly um, the responsible most in some ways. Yes. Yeah. Because they, they should be calling this out. They have protected all of the other corrupt entities that have been captured by this ideology with their lies. Think of it, the, the people that are most responsible for scrutinizing and getting at the truth are actually the ones actively driving and protecting those who are committing the acts. If it weren't for them, none of this would be happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%, yeah. 100%. Thank you so much, Brandon. Uh, great to see you as always. Good. And good luck. And we'll, we'll be talking again, I think. Thanks, Thank Brandon. you, Anne. Bye. Feel them. Appreciate it. I think we need to have Brandon on, you know, a lot to get... A regular slot. Brandon actually has made... I mean, he's making a science of this at this point. I mean, he mm. really has... He's doing the work. He's putting in... He's doing all of the research and digging into these, um, you know, academic institutions and discovering, you know, these extraordinary and frightening... Yeah. Um, realities so um we really are very very grateful for him so Philem, tell us more about um indigenous people day what have we discovered this is a this is a small little piece yeah. we found so medical students from the university of minnesota must now take an oath to honor all indigenous ways of healing that have been historically marginalized by western medicine and fight white supremacy colonialism and the gender binary yeah you have um, to take an oath. So, so you don't become a doctor unless you take this oath to, to that. Yeah. So this, so uh, all, 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 of, that. all that needs to be said there is this is why no one believes you on vaccines. If you if you are pushing this nonsense, do not be surprised when you are saying vaccines are safe that people don't believe you. If you're not serious about small things, who cares? Okay. People can say, oh, I'll just I'll sign this oath and it doesn't mean anything. But when, when you're not serious about this, why would people believe you on other things? You, you, you know what it makes me think you're, about? You're denigrating your profession. It makes, me, it makes me think about something that you brought up over the weekend because we were obviously in Vegas, baby, and looking at all the casinos. And Phelan, and Phelan made a really good point. He was saying, can you believe, like, he just looked at me and he said, can you believe that during COVID, when, you know, when we were, like, people were being told, to, we were being cleared off the beach, right? The way you weren't allowed to go to the beach unless you were there actively. And by the way, we were there actively, you know, walking or whatever like that. And then we sat there and just kind of protested. We did our protest. There's a, there's a picture of us occupying Venice Beach. Um, we, we, were the, we were the Occupy movement and all the cops were going by giving us, giving us a thumbs up, you know. Yeah. But um, while that was happening, 
and we were meant to, you know, believe the experts and, you know, wearing gloves and what all this nonsense and not being able to sit inside restaurants. At that very same time here in California, casinos run by indigenous people were operating and were allowed to continue to operate. And Phelan was going, can you believe that that happened and people put up with it? That, pe- you know, so the experts allowed that. The experts said... It was okay that BLM protests had happened where people were cheek by jowl, thousands and thousands of people on the street. That was actually somehow didn't, wasn't going to be something that would cause yes. infection. You know, so we, how are people meant to uh, in any way value what experts say? They've lost all of, you know, they've lost all their credibility yeah. through yeah. this. So the other little thing that happened recently which I thought and it'll just show you how my mind works and maybe your mind works in the same sick way that mine works but the Nobel Prize was won very, just in the last few days uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature was won by Annie Ernaud uh, a French writer uh, 82 year old oui. an 82 year old French author called Annie Ernaud mm-hmm. and interesting I've got a friend who lives in France and I wrote and I said oh have you heard and of this lo- woman and does a lot of reading and she does a lot of reading and she said I haven't heard of her I must look, in, look, look up that whatever so I thought so here's my way of thinking I thought hmm so they've picked a very obscure French writer to win this extraordinarily illustrious prize. It really is, you know, life transforming. So I thought, my first thought was, she's black. So, uh, or a person of colour, should I say. So I look her up. She's not. She's white. So I'm thinking, okay, got that one wrong. Okay. And you know what it is? I bet she's transgender. So I was wrong about that as well. She's not transgender. So I'm like, you know what? I might have to eat my words here. She probably is just an extraordinary writer. And look at me being an awful awful person to be saying that and I'm like why 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 you know what is going on what is going on and then what oh what made them choose her then I discover you know let's put it this way let me just I'll read this from the Guardian from 2019 but her growing following in the US and the UK also comes from her gripping and devastating novel Happening which was published in the UK in February telling in a plain detached style the harrowing story of her illegal abortion as a student in Rouen in 1963. The book details the desperate search for a backstreet abortionist and on 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 and basically... But then then that was made into a movie which won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival in 2021 and now in 2022 she wins the Nobel Prize for Literature. And I discover also that it's her second book that she wrote about this abortion that she had. So I read the book so you wouldn't have to. I read the book called Happening and... Um, I mean, bizarrely enough, she actually describes the product of the abortion. She actually describes the child. She actually describes the child hanging out of her. Um, and in very, her style of writing is incredibly cold, is what would be my best description of it. There are there are a lot of people that could win this prize. There are an awful lot of people. I mean, it must be very, actually, genuinely, it yeah. must be really difficult, by the yeah. way, to choose somebody. But I think, I think we know why this woman was chosen. Yes. And I have to say, if you think about my way of thinking, You'll recognize it yourself yes. as something that now seems to be the way we think, right? It's like, okay, out of all of the people in the world that write, how did this woman get chosen? At this stage, by the way, an 82-year-old, by the way, you know, who's been out there for a while. And it's like, how did this, you know, how did this happen? And, well, this is how it happened. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's like Clarence Thomas who puts, uh, I, th- I think he went to Harvard or oh, Stanford. Yeah. He puts a reduced by 20% sticker on his on his degree, on his on the certificate, because he's not sure if he got in through uh, uh, affirmative action, and you know he knows that now people are looking at uh, uh, at African Americans who who 
or lawyers or whatever and thinking did you get in did you are you the best or did you get in because you're you were african-american and it and it it, it discredits on Annie Arnaud's literature yeah because they're just giving her this prize because uh, of 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 her politics or and she won the prize by the way and she almost immediately said almost, almost immediately one of the first things she said was that she staunchly defended a woman's right to abortion and I just think it's interesting that they're trying to get all of that literature of hers about this illegal abortion that she had into the mainstream get people thinking about it writing about it reading yeah. about it again now because, they're making, of, they're because making, of Roe they're trying to make me an anti-abortion uh, outside the pale you will never yeah. win a prize you will never and this is by the way conservatives uh, any rich conservatives out there you need to start setting up prizes this is what they do she won the golden lion at venice and now she's won the nobel uh, literature prize and that is a and that's worth a million dollars now a million yeah, euros a so million that means euros. she can she never has to work again she can just work now uh, creating pro-abortion propaganda but it's also it's the publicity for the work that she's already done that's kind of extraordinary yeah. and I mean as film says this kind of proves it, t- it it really illuminates this issue that I that I talk about an awful lot um, where the arts well the arts are being the arts are very very leftist now they're very messagey they're very leftist they're very propaga- propagandastic and the left is is supporting the arts and funny enough the right are supporting the arts as well so people are giving money to the arts that are basically filled with this kind of um, against, very their, against their values events, against their values so what menu today it's so a very recipe. very very simple menu at the end and I, I, know, I know you're going to start thinking that I'm like working for some air fryer company but I'm, I'm in favour of all air fryers I'm non-discriminatory when it comes to air fryers this is a very nice very simple little appetizer that I would highly recommend I'm using goat's cheese that I got by the way from Costco and you'll see it comes in that packet and it's kind of it's kind of you know hard and it's maybe hard to manipulate very interesting and simple trick with uh, goat's cheese if you have a nice piece like that a little bar of it like that cut off what you need put it into a microwave um, safe uh, container you'll see I just did it there and put it in for like just under 10 seconds and it'll soften beautifully take your nice get nice fat jalapenos kind of like what I do with ice cream Phelan does this with ice cream by the way can you believe that he warms up his ice cream I don't know I'm not sure I feel how I feel about that but yes Phelan does warm up his ice cream what's wrong ice cream it comes out of the freezer it's just too cold too hard it just needs a little softening and it's not 10 seconds it's probably 6 seconds yes well with the with the cream cheese then put it in for just about just under 10 seconds and it'll become very easy to to, to deal with get your buy some nice fat you'll see nice these nice fat jalapenos I got and the thing to do if anyone's worried about the heat of these if you love heat obviously keep everything intact but if you're you know if you want to try and moderate the heat get rid of all of the seeds get rid of all of the ribs out of that the white cut, thing, the, the white, white the white rib cut your jalapeno there your nice fat jalapeno in two obviously and then you want to just scoop in that nicely softened cream cheese and then wrap that around secure that with toothpicks put that into your air fryer I would start with start with maybe and I always I, I keep my air fryer at the same temperature the whole time don't tell anyone but basically 400 degrees for most things which actually it works for everything by the way it works for everything put it in there for seven minutes have a look at it it's probably going to take about 10 minutes take them out let them sit for a minute particularly if you've got guests but that's a lovely 
A lovely cocktail appetizer to have and looks really impressive and people just adore them um, and enjoy. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.